Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I have a lot of things I'd like to say to you, um, even though most of you don't know me, but uh, I love this church. I really love this church. And uh, for many years as a pastor at Perry Baptist Church and then a missionary and then coming back to Perry Baptist, this church was like a second home to me. Whether coming to men's Bible studies uh, while you we were getting ready to go to the field um, or just being great friends with the pastors that had served here, from Brian Knight to Mike Hickson, of course, and Johnny and others. I'm just so thankful for all of you and the legacy of the gospel here. I don't want to drag that out. I'm going to talk about some things as we go through our text, but I just say it's a huge privilege for me to be able to stand before you and bring God's word. I'm so grateful for that. Plus, it's nice to see some of my old friends from Perry Baptist here, and some of you, there's Luke, uh, from that, that showed up at my youth group once in a while. Uh, what a blessing that is, too. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. To even think about this passage that was picked months and months ago, and yet it feels so like it was just picked by your Holy Spirit for this moment as I look at it. God, I ask that you will speak to our hearts, that you will encourage us, that you will bless us. And Lord, that we would be bold to go forth in the strength of the grace of Jesus Christ to the task you've given to us. In the precious name of your Son and our Savior, we pray this. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1-7 through says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in private pursuits, but since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him, an athlete is not crowned until he competes, unless he competes according to the rules. And it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm a sentimental person, and I will try not to be overly sentimental this morning, but I can't help it. You've had months to grieve, and I'm coming into this place and feeling a little bit of overwhelmed grief myself. And I think about this passage, and I think about what this church has been going through. I think of the word legacy. Legacy is important was driving into town even just this morning, and I was thinking about my time in Perry. I came to Perry in 2001 as a 25-year-old youth pastor right out of seminary. I had a one-and-a-half-year-old little girl. Some of you know my daughter, Haley. And now I stand before you as a 46-year-old man about to become a grandpa. You know, that's a big change in difference over 21 years I'll never forget getting that call. It was one day after 9-11, so I'll never forget it. I remember watching, you know, the towers crash. We were staying in Saginaw at the time at my wife's uh, parents' house, and we didn't, you know, we didn't have a TV, and someone called us and said, you need to get over here and see what's happening. And I remember uh, the church at Perry Baptist was voting on me the next day, and I thought, oh, they'll never vote. Why would you ever hire a new pastor right after the world comes to an end? Um, but sure enough, they did call me the next day. And I remember coming to Perry Baptist, and Brian Knight was the youth pastor here at Graham. Some of you probably remember him. 
and uh, he was kind of the veteran youth guy in the area, and he became a friend and a mentor and got to know Johnny while he was still young. Uh, I thought he was old, <laughs> but he was young and just starting out in vocational ministry. And of course, Pastor Mike was younger than I am today. And I thought, boy, you know, one day Pastor Mike will retire, you know, and I thought he was close to retirement, but he wasn't anywhere close to that. Just, I was so young. At 25, everything's in front of you. And even a minister of the gospel can be tempted to want to put his mark on the world. Words like influence and impact get paired with words like maximum and eternal. And we get in our own heads about what the mission is all about. We think it's about maximum impact and eternal impact. To some degree, that's true. At some point in our lives, though, if we live long enough, we reach this tipping point. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you're with me or you're past me, where instead of realizing that everything's in front of us, we come to the sudden realization that there are actually more days behind us now than before us. And that who we are is who we are. We're not becoming something different. Like, we are what we are. This is me. Like, I'm not getting better. I'm declining. I'm not improving. We may live to 64, or we may live to 104, but there will be a second date at the end of our dash. I was thinking about this, of course, thinking about Lansing area, and there's a statue in front of the Capitol building in Lansing. As far as I know, it's the only statue in front of the Capitol building of a man named Austin Blair. They make a bronze statue of you, and they put it in front of a Capitol building. That's kind of a big deal. It means you've made your mark in some way. You must have done something worth remembering. And yet, Only a few diehard history buffs in the room probably know much about Austin Blair unless you get on Wikipedia right now and Google it. And of course, some of you will come up, I knew all about him. I get it. Don't tell me that. (laughs) Most of us don't have any idea who he was. He lived and died. They made a statue of him, and now we like go on with our lives. Paul is writing this letter at what would prove to be the very end of his life. Legacy is definitely on his mind. Paul's sitting in a Roman prison cell. He's facing execution. He knows his days are numbered. He's suffering. He was a man who knew all about what suffering is. So when Paul says he's suffering, we believe him, right? He's gone through a lot more. It wasn't just like he got criticized on Facebook or he had a bad headache. No, Paul knew what it meant to to suffer. He's lamenting that he's been abandoned by most of his friends. He kind of, maybe he's exaggerating. All of Asia has abandoned me. Um, that's, I don't know how many of us can say that. A whole, whole region of the world has abandoned us. But that's how he felt in the moment. Paul was not concerned, though, about his legacy in the terms of will they remember me? Will they make a, stat, uh, make a statue of me in Rome? Or will they build a church building to my legacy in London He's not thinking about that at all. His concern instead is about the truth of the gospel, the testimony of his Lord, the message that was entrusted to him, and he was concerned that it would be faithfully and carefully passed on. Paul's dying desire was that Timothy would take the mission that Paul had received from Christ and make sure that it got passed on and on and on till today. What is going to be the legacy of Graham Church? 
and of each of you sitting here this morning as followers of Jesus Christ. These verses, I believe, give us marching orders, clear marching orders. Paul points out four gospel commands, four imperatives from the text that for securing the gospel legacy. I'm titling it like this, and hopefully it'll help you remember. Otherwise, I hate alliteration. So someone tell me the alliteration helps. Gain strength, number one. Give securely. Go hard and get perspective. Gain strength. Give securely. Go hard and get perspective. The first gospel command we see comes from verse one. Gain strength. He says this, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's kind of a strange use of the term. We don't use that a lot. I don't call Johnny my child. He doesn't refer to me as his child. It's kind of strange, especially it's strange to our ear when we think about 1 Timothy, where Paul's encouraging young Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Well, if you're not wanting people to despise your youth, why are you talking down to him by calling him a child? That's not what's happening here. That's not at all what's happening here. What he's, Paul isn't demeaning him, but rather he's appealing, like a father to a son. He's calling on this relationship that he's had with Timothy for a long time. He knew Timothy as a young teenager. He's been discipling him and working with him. He feels a, a fatherly love toward this young man. There's an urgency and warmth to the fatherly advice that's coming next. And his advice is what a lot of dads would say to a lot of sons, and that is be strong. The four imperatives in this passage, the four commands in this passage are all active, except for one, and that is this one. The verb here is a passive verb, and some of you are Greek and, he, and uh, English nerds, and the rest of us aren't, and I'll tell you what that means. All over the internet, there are front, front door philosophers telling men to man up and get strong. If you don't believe me, Grab your teenage son's cell phone and look through his TikToks at what he's listening to, and you'll find that there are front porch philosophers telling your sons how to man up and be tough and be strong and be macho. And to some degree, maybe we like that. Of course we want boys to be strong and girls to be sweet. But is that what Paul's saying to him? Is he telling Timothy to just kind of man up and Maybe go to the weight room and get some lifting done and kind of be a strong, powerful, tough man in the, in the nature of maybe the Greek philosophers, maybe the Stoics. Be a Spartan. That's not what he's saying, even though I know some of you are Spartans. He's not telling him to build his body and build his mind and build his confidence and dominate. Paul is telling Timothy to get strong but with a strength that cannot be cultivated within. He must be strengthened from without. That's what he's saying here. That's what it means by being passive. He's saying get strong, but not get strong because you build it up within yourself. No, he's saying some, this is a strength that comes to you that comes from outside you. This is a strength that comes from Christ. Christ has a strength in you. And then he says the grace of Strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. When I read the word grace, grace doesn't seem too manly to me. Probably it's because I misunderstand what grace is about. When we look at the meekness of Christ, 
the gentleness of Christ, the grace-filled way that Christ engages with children and with the disabled and with the sinners and those on the outside of society, the humble way he comes to people who are broken with sin and full of guilt and could never even enter into the temple because of, of too much baggage, the submission that Christ shows the Father and being obedient to his will and being willing to go to death It goes so counter to the macho culture of the day. But what strength it took for the eternal God of heaven to be born of a woman, to obey his earthly mother and father, to sit under fallen Sabbath school teachers. I don't know if they called it Sabbath school or maybe they went on Sunday. Our Jewish neighbors go to Sunday school, but I don't know why. But Jesus went and sat under teachers who were frail and fallen and didn't always get it right, clearly. He put up with people. There is a kind of strength that our world values, but it is not the kind of strength that God wants to use. The man who beefs up and learns martial arts and gets all the best weaponry just to go head-to-head with a nuclear warhead is a fool. So depending on your own physical and mental strength for the spiritual battles ahead are also foolish. You have to be strong, Paul is saying. He wants Timothy to be strong. He wants you and I to be strong. But it's not a strength we can get just by manning up or womaning up. It's a strength that has to come from outside us. The grace of Christ has to build us up for the spiritual battle ahead of us. The armor of God is not made out of metal. The armor of God is the gospel. He needs the power of Christ. So he says, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Gain strength. Secondly, we see give securely. He goes on to say, and what you have heard in verse 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy's been a lifelong friend of Paul. He has heard and seen so much from Paul, and Paul wants him to remember all of that. Paul's at the end of his life. His life has been entrusted to God, and what Paul loves so much and has devoted his life to, he is entrusting now to Timothy. But Paul is also aware of the fragility of the human nature. Paul is sitting in a prison cell, and like we said before, he's aware that many people have abandoned him. They've turned away from the gospel. Demas just loved the world, couldn't put up with the suffering, and he left. And while the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church, it doesn't mean that the church in Ephesus is not in danger. It doesn't mean that Graham Church is not in danger. History is filled with churches that were once thriving centers of gospel ministry and gospel proclamation that are now dead and dormant. Come to California. I can show you church after church with five people in it, ten people in it. Churches that were once bustling and booming and that have lost the hope of the gospel. He's reminded of Timothy. He's reminding here Timothy of his, his calling. You remember when God called you and the hands were laid on you and you were ordained into ministry, fan that flame of the gift that was 
declared about others. Other people have come around you, Timothy, and said that you're gifted for ministry. Remind yourself of that. He's reminding Timothy of what he's heard, what he's seen, the miracles that he's seen, the messages that he's heard, the suffering that he endured with Paul. He's reminding him of all of that. He wants to think him to think about that. Because now it's Timothy's turn to step up and be the one to make sure that the gospel keeps spreading. The handoff here is important. Have you ever watched a football game? I don't know, just, you know, maybe a game of national championship importance. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the title is on the line. And you're at the one-yard line. And it looks like all you have to do is just fall into the end zone, and your team is going to take the lead. And from there on, it's all the way to the championship. The touchdown is almost assured. But there's two very important vulnerable moments the first vulnerable moment is when the center snaps the ball to the quarterback. That transfer has to be clean. And the second vulnerable moment, you know it, especially you Wolverine fans, you know this well, is between the quarterback and the running back. What happens when the ball isn't securely handed off? The other team takes it and goes 100 yards the other way, and you lose. Spartan fans are happy, and Michigan fans are now in their feelings. Hopefully there's more Spartan fans than Michigan fans here, because otherwise you're, I've lost you all. <laughs> but you will remember this. The handoff is important. Everything depends on the handoff. If the quarterback is off, if the running back is off, the ball's going to be on the ground. And here we see in the handoff section, there is the who and the what. The what is the gospel, according to Paul here. That what you've heard from me, the message of the gospel, and the what, or the who, I'm sorry, is are faithful men who are able to teach others also. And I want us to pay close attention to this, especially of where you are at as a church right now. Both gifting and character are important. Gifting and character are important. We are in an age that idolizes gifting. And it's a grievous thing to turn on the computer or to listen because you find out pastor after pastor who was extremely gifted. Preachers who we listen to and learn so much from. Guys that we could never imagine falling. Guys that are just communicate the gospel better than anyone I've ever heard before. We can think of names Ravi Zacharias? If I sat here today and told you that Ravi Zacharias was going to prove to be a pervert, you would throw stones at me and run me off the stage. It's impossible to think of that. But what we found at the end of his life was that it wasn't just enough to be gifted. You have to have the character to go along with it. Paul is not just looking for gifting, gifted men. He's worried about about men whose ministries outstripped their character. Paul is looking for faithful men. Character must precede competence. Godliness must precede gifting. Faithfulness must precede fluency. Faithful men who won't fumble the handoff. 
Paul says, find faithful men, men who are tested, who've walked with God, who you can see the pattern of their life. That's why the qualifications for, for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are so much about character and so little about gifting. Order your life and ministry in a way that prioritizes discipleship. Christ modeled it. Scripture commands it. Love demands it. Give the gospel off securely. Entrust it to the next generation who can take it and teach others also. The third command we see here is this, and that is to go hard. It's tempting to take these metaphors that are here and make the whole sermon about that, but I don't think that's the the thrust of the text, but the metaphors are helpful to us. He says, share in suffering as a, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets himself entangled in human pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. When he says share in suffering, it brings us back just two paragraphs earlier, what you learned last week. When Paul called Timothy to share in his suffering. Remember those words from verse 8 of chapter 1? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who, listen to this, so encouraging, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, and in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul wasn't a guy that enjoyed suffering. Sometimes we read Paul and we're like, man, this guy's a masochist. He wasn't. He didn't like hurting. He didn't love being in prison. I'm sure he loved all the same things you would love if you were living in his time. But he also expected suffering. Paul was following Jesus. He knew that he didn't have to suffer, but that his suffering was part and parcel of being a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. He said, this is why I suffer as I do. He, like Demas and the others, could have had the opportunity to walk away from the gospel. And this part of his suffering would have been over. But he suffered with hope. He says, I'm not ashamed. Even though I'm in chains. Even though I'm in prison. Even though everyone's ashamed of me, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day that which is entrusted to me. Paul endured everything. He's going to end up paying the ultimate sacrifice. He's going to have his head cut off. Like, that is, that is the ultimate pain, right? He had discovered, he, he, he's even going to endure that because he had found the most precious gift in the universe. Remember how Jesus talked about the guy who finds a treasure in his field? Paul had discovered the treasure in the field. He had found the pearl of great price. 
life and immortality had been brought to light through the gospel. And now he's counting on God's grace to pass it on and not to fumble it. And here he uses three hopeful metaphors to describe how we go hard and how we share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. He uses these metaphors that you're probably very familiar with, right? The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. I'm not going to go a lot of detail into this because you're pretty familiar with this, I'm sure. And the metaphors speak for themselves for the most part. But he says, a good soldier. What's his mission? His aim is his mission. He's got a job to do. It's given to him by his commander. And his aim is to fulfill the mission that he's been sent on. So what does he do? He avoids entanglements that, that trip him up and compromise him. That word kind of describes like the weaving of a basket. And you can kind of imagine like Garfield playing with the ball of string and it explodes and now he's tangled up in it. He's saying he avoids all of that. He's getting rid of everything in his life that would keep him from the mission that he's being sent on. Taking it off, putting it aside. He doesn't want to be encumbered when he gets into the middle of the battle. He hopes to achieve honor, and victory is his valor. And a veteran soldier knows going into battle that it's not going to be easy. He remembers the blood. He remembers the death. He knows that he may well die himself, but he frees himself of entanglements because his aim is to please his king. Listen to that. Secondly, he uses the illustration of the winning athlete. Their aim is their victory. Train hard. And knows his events. They train and they suffer and they prepare and they study and they have experience and learn the rules. Because they have to know the rules of the game if they want to win. I'm sorry to use two Michigan examples, but many of you remember 1993. The basketball game's going on. The Fab Five are finally going to win their big game. North Carolina has a pretty good team. Comes the end of the game. Chris Weber gets the ball. He gets flustered because he all, well, he he almost travels, but he travels, right? He gets the ball. He almost travels. He can tell he's flustered. He runs down the court. He gets trapped in the corner, and what does he do, right? I mean, you know, by God's grace, he started the timeout foundation, which helps a lot of people, but it started with this mistake. The rules mattered here. He didn't understand that there was no timeouts left, and he called a timeout with none left, and the rules state that if you call a timeout with none left, you get a technical foul penalty, North Carolina got the ball. They scored two free throws. They got the ball. The game was over. A game that was sure to be won was lost because he didn't understand the rules. He's an athlete that's preparing, knows what he's preparing for. He knows the end. He's suffering. He's getting rid of things in his life. He's preparing his body, but he's also preparing his mind. He's understanding what's at stake. The hardworking farmer. What's the goal here? The goal is the harvest. They sow in hope. They work and they toil, and they wait with no guarantee of a harvest. Some of you guys know Ben and Katie. I don't think they're here yet. Oh, there you are. Okay. I remember being out with them planting their trees. You know, there's probably no more patient farmer than a tree farmer because you plant the trees and you have to wait seven years before you get your harvest. Some of you have other kinds of harvesting. Maybe you plant soybeans, and that's kind of cheating because they come up fast. But anyway, whatever you're doing in farming, you plant in hope. You put the seed in the ground. And then what do you got to do? You got to wait. With no guarantee of a harvest. What's going to happen if the river fl floods? What happens if it no rain, doesn't rain? What happens if your crop dies? All the money you invested into the ground is gone. 
So when a farmer puts his seed into the ground or puts the seedling into the ground, he's planting in a type of hope. Paul goes on, he makes this point that I, I actually think when he's, when he's talking about, uh, you know, about the, the minister expe- expecting to receive the first fruits, I think he is referring to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 to 18. I just want to put that a little note in your mind as you're thinking about your pastors and taking good care of them, that we should be generous with our pastors. He's making that little point there. He's inserting it in. But all three of these examples suffer in pursuit of the good. All three require discipline and labor. All three require skill and preparation. All three are striving toward an end. However, that makes the suffering completely worth it. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer suffer, but it's worth it. We see that it's worth it. So go hard after Christ in the hope of the gospel. That's what he's saying to Timothy. And then lastly, get perspective. He says in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The next verse, Paul's going to tell Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. That's not my text, so that's all I'm going to say about that. But in verse 7, he, he says, think about it. Take time to consider this teaching. The NIV says reflect. The New American Standard uses the word consider. All these words are talking about the same thing. Think it over, reflect, consider it. To what end? So that we can have understanding. So we can know our days. We can understand our times. We can make good decisions with what's in front of us to do. We use our intellect in the hopeful expectation that God will give to us the understanding we need for that situation. Would it be nice if the Bible was organized like a self-help book where you could have a problem like, how do we find our next pastor? And we just go to the back and we look up HH, okay, how to find. And uh, then we look at that and we say, which, which person? And it tells us actually the name, right? And, and we look at that up and, okay, sweet. That's what, that's what God's word does for us. We just helps us solve all of our problems. Or we, we go to the back of the book, six steps for, for dealing with a rebellious child. Or just a couple easy ways to deal with destructive sin habits. Or maybe Timothy could go to the book and say, you know, how to win emphasis for Jesus with one simple outline. That'll change everything. That is not the way that the Word of God works. It'd be nice if it was. But God has something else for us to learn through this process than just going to the Bible as a self-help guide. Instead, we see Jesus lifted high. We hear the commands of Christ, and we are taught to follow his example. We read the scriptures and see commands and patterns. And then we need to use our minds in humble submission to scripture and act in faith, trusting God to direct our steps. Paul knows that he's not told Timothy everything that Timothy's going to need. But he has given Timothy the tools by which to do the ministry he's been called to do. I know it would be nice to have Jesus in the room. One day we will see him face to face, amen? He'll tell us exactly what we got wrong, and he'll say, it's okay, my blood covered it all, and it'll be okay. And we'll follow him just perfectly in heaven. It'd be nice to have Paul here as our local Awana missionary, wouldn't it? If we could just call him up for advice when we need it. Paul's like, oh, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. This is how you do it. Okay, thanks, Paul. I'm so glad you're in our area. We go about doing what he says to do. 
Paul knows his race is almost finished. His time of mentoring Timothy and all the young churches is about to be done. The ball's been handed off. Paul's walking toward the sidelines. Now Timothy's going to have to take that same ball and hand it off. He's going to have to use wisdom and remember Jesus' example. And trust in the Lord for understanding. And then act in faith. You'll be given everything you need to obey the Lord. God's given you everything you need. I'm sure, I'm sure it'd be great to have Mike here right now. <laughs> but he's not. God knows something's better for you. He's given you everything you need. Think about it. Think about the word. Think about the example you've seen. Take that next step and follow Jesus. God will direct your steps. Trust in the Lord. So what? I want to give you two, two practical exhortations as we close this morning. The first is for the church, and the second is for you as an individual. The first is this, and I, I'm, I know I'm being a little sentimental. I apologize if that offends you, but it just is what it is, right? Um, for 27 years, you've had a pastor who was both faithful in his life and character, and he was exceptional in teaching you the gospel. Driving the back roads from 127, I was coming from, uh, can't even think about it right now, Houghton Lake, coming down 127. It was nostalgic for me, getting off on Meridian Road, passing these little churches that just have a lot of memory to me. Thinking of all the times I drive up from Perry Baptist with Jim Carroll and, and sometimes Desmond Bell, and we get into the church van here at, well, not here at Graham Church, the other building at Graham Church. We'd pile in together, the pastors of the churches, sometimes other guys would join us, and we'd drive and spend time just talking and thinking about ministry, and maybe we'd drive to Grove, or maybe we'd drive to Faith Bible Fellowship, or over to St. John's, or sometimes we'd go down to Moody Pastors Conference. Just, we did all sorts of things like that together, and you have these times in the car of just thinking and talking and reminiscing about ministry and talking about family, and as a young pastor, 25, 30 years old, to be able to sit there with these guys that have been in ministry longer than me have lived more life than me, have experienced things that were different than me, was so valuable to me. Even though I've never been a member of this church, and I've probably only attended service here a couple times. I think I've heard Johnny preach once. I think I've heard Mike preach twice, maybe. I think I've preached here two times before this time. I've only been here about a half a dozen times in a service. I've been deeply impacted by this church. You think of many mornings, there's Matt, right, sitting in the men's Bible studies and reflecting on what God was teaching us and thankful for that. I've learned so much from your pastors, so much. I think about things they've said to me all the time, especially in the last few months. Mike and Johnny are exceptional teachers of God's Word. But I, I've never really sat under their teaching. But I learned from their life. And I learned from their character. So you forward, pray about who will one day come and join the leadership of this church and teach the gospel to the next generation of Graham Church. Look for faithfulness. Look for character. Look for godliness. Look for wisdom. Of course they should be able to teach 
But that comes secondarily. It flows out of who they are as followers of Jesus. Look for a man whose teaching flows out of a love for the gospel and a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Can I get an amen? I think you need to say amen to that. Okay, good. I think you were with me. It's just, I realize this is Shiawassee County. Okay. <laughs> what about the rest of us? You may not be an elder here this morning. You may not be a teacher, but this message is for you as well. Moms and dads, this message applies to you. Grandmas and grandpas, every day you're passing down some sort of legacy. I sit with people all the time who are messed up by the legacy that was handed down to them. Don't be part of that problem. What are you going to be passing down? What are you going to pass down to the next generation? Young people who are not parents yet. Your lives and your actions matter. Things that are happening now in high school and college are impacting people for eternity. It's weird to think how many 40 and 50-year-olds are still screwed up about something that happened to them in high school or junior high. Your impact and your legacy matter. The things that happen this year will impact the rest of your life and maybe the lives of your friends and your family. You are building your legacy. And so the question is, what legacy are you building all of us have that responsibility together as the people of God to build the legacy of the gospel going forward. So gain strength. Give securely. Go hard and get perspective. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that the gospel we've made much of continually for generations here at Graham Church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.